Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Monday, May 13, 2019, is the Byron Wien Lecture on Financial History. In this talk, James Grant and Byron Wien discuss current economic trends and government policy under the Trump administration. Good evening, Byron. <laughs> well, we, we both ought to thank all of you for coming out. It is a truly well, terrible day. There's no game at Yankee Stadium tonight, Byron. <laughs> um, I was uh, going to make the point that the statistical differences between uh, the Trump regime so far and the Obama regime are not so marked. The GDP growth is faster now, if that is your favorite datum. Uh, but uh, real wage growth, for example, or inflation, um, even uh, payroll employment growth are not so very different. But what I think is most striking about uh, the present day is in so many ways how wonderful it is. I picked up the Financial Times the other day, and there was a story about some scientists from Israel creating a uh, heart, uh, a printable 3D human heart. Of course, it didn't autonomously beat. I guess that's next year's project. Uh, that's a, well, I, I mean, if Donald Trump were here, he would come up and slug you for saying that. He would no, but, argue but, but, unemployment is at a 50-year low. No, no, that's true. You know, he would argue that the economy is growing at better than 3%. He would argue dismantled regulation. Well, he would say that. Yeah. He would, <laughs> when, he was, when he was running for office in 2016, he said often something to this effect. He said, this is a very false economy and a very false stock market. It is predicated upon phony interest rates, 0% rates. And uh, just because he has changed speechwriters doesn't mean he was wrong, Byron. Well, he's his own speechwriter, really. I mean, he's his own... Because he communicates primarily with the American people through Twitter. Right. But I was going to say, apropos of the present moment, uh, there are the wonders of science, and they are superimposed upon a set of economic data that by the lights of the 1970s would equally be regarded as wondrous. If anyone was paying attention in the 1970s, if if you had been asked, would you, um, Mr. Uh, Citizen or Madame, would you settle for an unemployment number beginning with number three, and would it be acceptable to you if the inflation rate began with a number two? And you might say, yes, that would be acceptable. That would be heaven on earth from the perspective of the Carter years. And what is interesting, from the, certainly from a historic perspective, is we have these things, and nobody's happy. <laughs> it's raining, you know, the stock market's down today. Uh, well, but the, the, the down the, for the past week. Right, the, oh, we'll a whole week. That. Yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, what, what he would say is that the tone of the economy is better than it yes. was under okay. Obama. True. That the mood in Washington is more business friendly. I mean, we've got a West Side liberal audience here. And, you know, if you look back in history, it's pretty hard to find a time when the incumbent president has lost his position when the economy was doing well. And he's going to argue against whomever he runs against that the economy is doing better under him 
than it was under his predecessor. So he's going to ask the question, are you better off than you were four years ago? And what's the answer that the American public is likely to give? Well, I think yes is the answer to that uh, on an economic basis. I think there are other conditions to consider. I'm not sure if they trump the economic one, but uh, there is a certain, how to say it, astringency in our civil life that may weigh in the scales of the election. Uh, I'm not sure how much of that's going to count for. But, you know, the, the, um, getting back to, what, to Trump's critique of the monetary uh, support uh, of the, our finances and of business activity, I think it's highly problematical. Well, some- let's take a couple of things that you're probably uncomfortable with. The balance sheet of the Federal Reserve in 2008 was $1 trillion. The Federal Reserve was founded in 1913. It took it 95 years to get to a trillion-dollar budget deficit. Today, the budget deficit is $4 trillion. It was $4.5 trillion. So you could argue that all of the good times that we had under Obama and uh, under Trump are a, result, are a result of monetary expansion. In addition to that, the budget deficit um, I mean, that, that's the balance sheet yes. of the Federal Reserve. The budget deficit is going to go over a trillion dollars. That's the highest percentage I think we've ever experienced in peacetime. So those are two numbers that are pretty frightening. Do you think anybody cares about those? No. I know you care about them. No, I, I, but let's, let's bring this down to the level of the family or of a business. Um, if you didn't care about your balance sheet, you could do fabulous things. <laughs> I mean, if, it, if your balance sheet did not count, um, uh, you could show uh, growth, statistical growth. Uh, if you were a family, you could uh, get a much bigger house if debt were not a factor. And uh, uh, Well, everything is growth say- attributable to Federal Reserve expansion? I mean, the first wave was over a single weekend in September of 2008 when Lehman failed. The Fed balance sheet over that weekend went from $1 trillion to two and a half. And the reason it did that is to prevent the American banking system from melting down. So the Fed clearly did the right thing there, but they kept on going. And as a result of that, we had the beginning of what is going to turn out to be, in my opinion, the longest recovery in the post-war period. Now, is, that a, is it a healthy recovery, or is it laying the seeds of something we're going to pay for later? Well, it's a truism of the life of a market economy that there are forever cycles, right? Um, I mean, uh, and to, I think, a degree, uh, uh, booms not only precede bust, but they cause them. And they cause them through the gradual accumulation of error. When they say the stock market is correcting something, you have to ask, well, what are the errors the stock market is correcting? And oftentimes those errors are the errors of, of, uh, of, uh, of miscalculation, miscalculation of risk and of investment return. And um, I am now going to talk my book as the proprietor of a publication with the words interest rate in its banner. And I'm going to say that uh, interest rates are the most consequential and delicate prices in capitalism, that they balance savings and investment and define investment hurdle rates and measure financial risk and so forth. 
And, um, and yet, uh, the central banks of the world feel it is their privilege, uh, these handsy central banks feel it's their privilege to press down their thumbs on the scale of these markets. And interest rates, uh, there's, a, there's a book that some of you perhaps have committed to uh, memory, or at least portions of it. It's called The History of Interest Rates, um, 2000 BC to the Present by uh, Richard Silla and Sidney Homer. And this book, uh, uh, the still living co-author, I took a, he took my phone call. I asked Dick, um, Dick Silla. Um, uh, has there ever before been a time in which interest rates were so low? He said, no. And he said, specifically, there are today something like $10 trillion worth of so-called fixed income securities, mostly Japanese and European, that are priced to deliver a yield to the investor of less than nothing. What an extraordinary thing. And this, so, so this to me is the proof, to my satisfying proof to me, that these rates are not naturally low because of the aftermath of a terrible banking situation as we had 10, 10 years ago, by the way, 10 years ago. They are low owing to the um, premeditated manipulation of rates by a bunch of central bankers, public employees. And this has had the effect, I say, of uh, doing all sorts of things both desirable and not so. They have uh, raised up uh, investment asset values. Your house is probably worth more in good part owing to the low level of mortgage rates. Certainly equity portfolios are higher. Uh, Corporate promoters of all kinds, uh, private equity promoters, uh, venture capitalists. Oh, go easy Oh, (laughs) I didn't mean it that way. (laughs) Have done a land office business. but, you know, there, there is, uh, every pancake has two sides. The other side, uh, by pressing down interest rates, they have raised up materially the cost of retiring. So uh, if a uh, million dollars of hard-earned life savings got you $50,000 when rates were 5%, current rates will get you much less than that $50,000 for the same million. They'll perhaps give you two twenty-five thousand. So you have to save twice as much. Um, and this humble arithmetic is at the root of the pension crisis we have all been reading about and not really paying very close attention to. Well, you're stepping into some hot water here. Um, because what you're saying is use the word manipulative. You know, I would argue that uh, what the Federal Reserve did, um, there, there are sort of two things that policymakers can get away with. One is expanding the money supply, which they did. And the other is deficits. We could, we've learned that we could run extraordinary deficits without anybody getting too upset, as long as we can print money and somebody will buy our paper. But what you're saying is that all this money that's out there has kept interest rates low. And I would agree with that because there's, you know, the, the balance sheet of the, of the central banks, major central banks of the world, excluding China, have gone from three trillion in 2008 to 16 trillion, and a lot of that money that's sloshing around is looking for a place to hide, and it's hiding 
in fixed income instruments of various kinds. And that's why we have low rates here and zero or negative rates in other places. But Byron, so um, venerable, shall we say, are we that we can remember a time when fixed income securities were not thought of as places to hide, but rather places in which to be trapped. Uh, the paradox of these bonds, uh, these promises to pay these IOUs, bonds yielding, delivering interest, income to the investor of like nothing. The, the paradox that people treat them as if they were uh, safe havens, right? If they were kind of safe deposit boxes in themselves. And when, um, as recently as 1981, when 30-year U.S. Treasury securities were priced to deliver a 15% per annum return, um, our mutual friend Leon Koopman, I think, in speaking in jest, called those certificates of confiscation because people had... Uh, for the preceding 35 years, have watched interest rates go up and bond prices go down. This uh, and muscle memory, which is a very important but unheralded feature of our investing. Right, studies. and and rates went down from 1982 until 1999, and the, it was the first time in economic history where rates declined and earnings increased, and we had the greatest bull market in history. But now we're having another bill market in history, and this time it's because interest rates have stayed low. If I had told you in 2008 that the economy would be growing at 3% and uh, unemployment would be at a record low and and the stock market would be at a record high, and I asked you where interest rates would be, I don't think you'd say 24 and I'm supposed to know quite right. And I'm supposed to know something about them. <laughs> You're quite right, Byron. I would not have said that. So, but that's where we are, and everybody loves it. Well, the, the, the only what about the sa- oh, wait, love it. Are there any savers in the audience? I can't. No, I, I didn't think so. Uh, the people who don't love it are the people in Florida who are, who went down to Florida because they they could get five uh, percent on their certificate. Uh, uh, savings certificates, and now they get less than 1%. They're complaining. But the rest of the country is happy to have these low rates. You know? So, but you're not. I don't know. I I would prefer true rates. I, I, I think um, uh, that we need, um, you know, organic, uh, um, uh, gluten-free, farm-to-table interest rates. <laughs> We don't need these hothouse things that central banks give us. And, um, and the cost of them, I think, is the cost of a, a very rickety architecture of finance, very heavy on the debt department. And the debt is of increasingly lower and lower quality. Uh, Byron, that, this is, I'm not talking about your Wall Street. I'm talking about the other portion of Wall Street. But there is a, a predatory element in the relationship between the borrowers and the lenders. And the lenders, knowing full well there's a kind of an income famine in the world, are exacting all manner of concessions from the lenders. The borrowers have the, um, have the upper hand with the result that uh, um, there's like a trillion dollars worth of uh, bank debt or near bank debt uh, that is uh, free of the fine print we call covenants. And the covenants... Uh, serve to check the um, uh, the financial conduct of the borrower. It, the covenants will hold the borrower to certain financial metrics, like 
not too much more debt. Uh, don't pay out a bunch of dividends to the promoters, et cetera, et cetera. And now those covenants are absent. And this is one feature only of the unintended consequences of the persistence of really, really low rates. Look, <clears throat> there's no question that a, a marginal buyer can issue high-yield paper that is covenant light, as you suggest, and get it sold pretty easily. Um, but look, and I, I want to get into that, but let's just step back and go to the Federal Reserve. Do you think the Federal Reserve should have raised rates four times last year and have stopped raising rates this year? You think that if, if I could were in a position to appoint you as a Federal Reserve governor, would you have been comfortable in that environment? Well, I would have resigned, Byron. <laughs> I, I think that um, the Fed has, as we say on Wall Street, has missed its market. Um, I think that the structure of our debt is such that the country is hard-pressed to stand even slightly higher rates than these. And you can see as soon as the uh, federal funds rate, which is the uh, not so important as it was, but still it's the benchmark for Federal Reserve intentions, it's the uh, money market interest rate that is regarded still as the Fed's policy interest rate, when that rate begins to poke a little bit above the rate of inflation, uh, rivets start to pop on the SS stock market. And uh, the Fed has learned that, and it's very cherry about raising its rate. And um, that is a kind of a sickness, right? That is, uh, you know, that's not a good yeah, thing. Yeah, but the Fed only has two rep- responsibilities. Full employment and low inflation. Right, but the Fed's functional responsibilities have become arsonist and firemen. Yeah, but, but it has, you know, but we have low. I mean, you know, explain to me, because this, this one I don't have an answer to. Why doesn't inflation go up? Right. I mean, every, we have low un, un, unemployment. You know, the economy is pre- reasonably hot. You would think uh, that inflation would be rising, but it isn't. Well, another <clears throat> I'd turn the question around almost and ask, in the age of uh, uh, Jeffrey Bezos and the age of B and, uh, Airbnb and of uh, other digital improvements, almost uh, uh, uncountable, why aren't, uh, why aren't prices falling? Well, they, you know, the, the two traditional answers and I'm comfortable with them, are globalization and technology. Right. You know, and uh, they definitely have played a role. But I I also think uh, that there are too many people out there making too much stuff, and the competition is uh, very severe. Yeah, it's kind of capitalism at work in a way. The Fed um, takes its remit about price stability and defines it in a kind of an Orwellian way. The Fed... uh, for reasons uh, of its own, uh, has uh, come out and said, uh, we define price stability means a rate of rise in prices of 2% a year. Now, huh? What not stable like no inflation? It, it strikes me that um, it's like the um, National Institutes of Health saying that uh, a little bit of measles is what we want, just a little bit, and we can control it. And the Fed, uh, I think, uh, uh, will finally... To finally see that it is not in charge of events, but events might well one day soon be in charge of the Fed. Um, you know, um, 
inflation is not a leading indicator of inflation. In the, in the 60s, we recall, um, yeah. there were four, I think, or five consecutive years beginning in 1960 or 59 in which the CPI did not show a year-over-year rise of even 2%. In some years, it was less than one-half of 1%. And William McChesney Martin was then the chairman of the Fed. And when the rate of inflation got above, you know... Seven. When the rate of inflation got above, like, nothing, he was giving speeches about the peril that we confronted in a latent inflationary period. Now, he was finally the steward of an inflation rate that was indeed very high. But so... The you know, question for you, Byron, is, is what has changed in our tolerance for no inflation in the, from, from, the, from the early 60s, not so long ago in the scheme of things, to the present? Now we must have a rate of inflation at 2%. Why? Well, you know, in the 70s, you had everything going up. You had labor tight. You had commodity prices rising. You had wages rising. And the inflation rate went above 10, I think. Uh, to Fort, and Paul Volcker came in, raised interest rates. The country went through a, a two-year recession from 80 to 82, and we licked it. And interest rates were 15 on the 10-year, as you say, and they began to come down. And we enjoyed a 20-year period of prosperity. But now, we, you know, we don't have those problems. We have the uh, aberrational and anomalous condition where inflation has stayed low, even though the economy is running above 3% and unemployment is at a long time low. You know, and, the fa- and people are taking advantage of it and building up debt. And it reminds me of the Chinese situation. Everybody's been waiting for a hard landing in China because there they're building up debt at an enormous rate in order to fuel their expansion. Well, they've been waiting for a hard landing for four years, and it isn't coming this year. Four years is nothing, Byron, for waiting. (laughs) Well, you know, let's just hear your opinion on China. Do you think China's a bubble waiting to burst? Yes. You do? I do. And why? For the reasons you just gave. I I think China has something like uh, most of the half the world's banking assets. uh, anyway, it's, a, it's, a, it's an old story. It's a stale story, as they say on Wall Street. It has not been a moneymaker, but I, I don't see what's wrong with it, although uh, it certainly is taking its sweet time and delivering. So you think of China is a situation like Japan, um, where the debt burden is ultimately going to be its undoing? Yeah, I do. But there's no evidence of it. Well, there's no, no evidence they, of, of, of the undoing. There, the central government, there, you know, Donald Trump would like to be Xi Jinping because the central government does have influence over the People's Bank of China. Yeah. Well, there, there, there are signs in China of, uh, of a debt problem becoming manifest and not latent. So I, I'm not sure, so sure it's, it's, uh, it's never going to happen or not happen soon. But I, I resign in my former role as um, China seer. It didn't work. I'm going, to, I'm going to specialize in Brooklyn, where I live. <laughs> well, we ought to talk a little bit about China because it seems to be in the headlines these days. We have. <laughs> you know, we have, a, we have an, all right, all, an outright trade war going on with China. Um, we import uh, $530 billion worth of goods from them, and they import about 130 from us. 
Uh, we've just raised tariffs on $200 billion. We're threatening to raise tariffs on the remaining 325 or so, uh, and they're going to retaliate. And how is this all going to end? Well, doesn't sound bullish. <laughs> well, the stock market is telling you it's going to end badly. And, you know, I've been saying that we're not going to have a recession until 2021. Uh, maybe this is going to make me wrong. What do you think? Is, this, is, is the trade war that's going on with China enough to put the U.S. into a recession? I don't mean to be so much of a platitudinarian, but um, ah, it's raining today. I, this brings me to the point that uh, the National Weather Service, which is in the forecasting business, spends a billion dollars a year and uh, employs uh, many, many uh, very knowledgeable and brilliant scientists uh, takes billions of discrete observations on computers that are, are orders of magnitude stronger than anything on one's desk, and their line of vision goes out 10 days. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and they, deal, they, they deal with big data, such as the Federal Reserve could never hope to get. There's a, there's a wonderful book by a woman... A German physicist, I can't recall her name, but I do recall the name of the book because it describes my high school career to a degree. And the title is Lost in Math. It came out last year. <laughs> and this, this uh, most formidable author uh, describes the difficulties in theoretical physics in English and very accessible. And she, she, uh, she, her critique, by the way, is that uh, physics has become preoccupied with aesthetics, with the beauty of um, a theory rather than its pre uh, predictive value. And she, she uh, uh, regrets this. So towards the end, it's a little, it's a little personal detail. She says, you know, uh, um, economics seems to pay better than theoretical physics. And I looked into it. I looked into economics. And she said, uh, uh, I discovered two things. First of all, uh, the mathematics is not very impressive. And secondly, the data are horrendous. Now, now, given that, um, I think it's one uh, that, that the Federal Reserve can get away with telling us what's going to happen in two or three or five years is just, it just, it's just incredible. And these are the people who missed the biggest professional event of their lives in 2004, 5, 6, 7, and 8. I mean, we all make mistakes, but we ought not to keep making the same one. We ought not to keep on stepping on the same rake. And we, the people, ought not to listen to it or really put up with it. And I think that the Fed has, um, uh, has turned into a kind of a, a crypto uh, economic planning bureau. It's got 700 economic PhDs, and they want us to... Anyway, you got me started, Byron. Well, well you know, I've got you started, but I want to finish you off. You know, <laughs> um, because... If you look at what the Fed did in 2004 or seven, I mean, I, I've got a picture of Alan Greenspan above my bed, you know, and I use it for a dartboard. There's no single person who contributed to the collapse that we had in 2008-9 more than Alan Greenspan. And, and the reason is that he refused to use his regulatory authority to restrain what the banks were doing in subprime lending. And that is what brought us down. 
but I don't see a similar set of mistakes being made by Bernanke or Janet Yellen. It doesn't seem to me that Federal Reserve policy is going to be the cause of our undoing. Uh, I'm worried, as you are, about the buildup of debt. But as long as the economy can keep growing, and I think it can, I don't think that's going to bring us down. Well, let's let's look at Uber, for example, as a case study in one of the unintended consequences of a very low cost of capital. Um, Uber is one of the miracles of the age. You know, you're standing in a, let us say, hypothetically, on a rainy street corner, and it's dark and you're unfamiliar with the territory. You hit your, the app, and then pretty soon... There is a, uh, uh, a car. It's safe inside. It's warm. The lights are on, and you drive away. It's, a, it's, it's astounding, right? Uber has been in business, what, 10 years or so, um, and it has done everything except turn a profit. <laughs> and it has um, uh, disrupted, it is the term of art, uh, disrupted the taxi business the world over. Um, but consider the... Um, uh, the nature of the disruption and the costs of this disruption. So uh, 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 we are meant to think that Uber has some magical economy of scale such that its business model is uh, is superior to that which it has displaced. It's like in New York City. What is that business model? Well, its drivers are um, uh, consultants. Uh, or, uh, and uh, they are um, uh, allowed to buy their own insurance and maintain their own vehicles, pay their own tolls, um, and, uh, and maintain their own vehicles. And they make, uh, after everything, about uh, 10, do- 10, or, 10 or $11 an hour. And the reason you know that they are not really making it is, A, the turnover is so hard, so, so fast, and B, Uber had an a, a, a auto leasing business some years ago, and leasing business failed because the drivers apparently did not make enough money to maintain payments on their vehicles they leased through Uber. So the unit economics of Uber would appear to be inherently unprofitable. That's a big, it's a big claim, but they appear to be inherently unprofitable. And yet, this, co- this company was brooded about as the possessor of a $120 billion Stock market capitalization. That was a, that was a talk on Wall Street, and so this is. I cite this as an example of the megalomaniacal, mill, megalomaniacal, <laughs> um, uh, uh, bubble-like distortions that an artificially low cost of capital can introduce into economy. So you don't know what the distortions might be this time, comparable to the mortgage thing. I think we'll find out. Okay, well, Uber. It, you know, is a, a case of profligacy, perhaps. But we have a number of companies that are similar to Uber in the sense that they're disruptors, like Facebook and Google uh, and Amazon. And their market value isn't $80 billion. Uh, their market value is a trillion. And, you know, and they're profitable, maybe not profitable enough to justify those capitalization rates, but they're profitable. Um, so is the system really so uh, rotten as you would suggest with the Uber example? Well, I think that these um, that the uh, uh, the startup economy um, is a very important part of the economy, and the startup economy is 
is distorted to the extent that uh, investors no longer insist on profitability within any reasonable, anticipatable horizon. And what this means is that uh, a lot of capital is wasted and a lot of people get used to being paid by companies. They're going to stop paying them when the music stops. And I think that's one of the risks out there. Well, Uber and Lyft could blow up, but that wouldn't necessarily corrupt the whole stock market. But there are a couple of other things I want to touch on. There's been a lot of talk recently about modern monetary theory. The idea that a country like the United States that prints its own currency can run unlimited deficits as long as people will buy our bonds. Does that idea make sense? Because it looks like we're going to run those big deficits. Well, this modern monetary theory is a, is a brainwave of a man named Abba Lerner, L-E-R-N-E-R. And Abba Lerner was an uh, English subject who grew up on the kind of wrong side of, of London and who came of age uh, at about the time that, uh, that Keynes was making his mark. And he uh, was proved a learner that proved a brilliant economics student, a close reasoning fellow, and, and a very lucid writer. And he, he, he coined the phrase called functional finance. And Lerner said uh, that there's no such thing as sound finance. So put that aside. Put aside the gold standard. Put aside notions of balanced budget. No. What matters is the well-being of the people as defined by a low rate of unemployment. In fact, no unemployment and no inflation. Those are his two criteria. So it sounds okay, right? And um, he said this can be achieved uh, in the following way. He said uh, the government ought to borrow without stint uh, until such time as there appears to be an inflation problem. And then it raises taxes and taxes away the excess spending power. So it's the government's money. It prints it, it's paper. And the government can, through these means, engineer this state of almost permanent prosperity and well-being for all and not just for some. That was the, But there was a codicil. And Werner said, this doesn't work when a country has a significant exposure to foreign creditors. So the United States, what, something like 35 or 38% of our debt is held abroad. So anyway, so, but, but mostly what strikes me, Byron, about this modern monetary idea is to the extent to which a Republican administration has silently adopted it. Well, now they're talking about not, not doing only a, we're already running a trillion dollar deficit. And that's without a, a one to two trillion dollar infrastructure right. program. So, so, you know, there's a, there's a play by uh, Moliere, uh, bourgeois, gentilhomme, uh, uh, um, and in this play, there's a character, I think, uh, Monsieur Jordan, maybe, who, who woke up one day and was told uh, that he can speak prose. And furthermore, that you have been speaking prose for your entire life. And, and this character just full of himself. I, I am speaking prose. Amazing. And, and the same token, Donald Trump, is speaking modern monetary theory. He wants the Fed to create money until there is a visible problem with inflation. Never mind. Remember, he's a Republican. Correct. He's sort of low, small government. Well, he's a, no, he's a, he's a New York Democrat, actually, but anyway. Um, <laughs> so so he, he, wa- he, wants, he wants the Fed to do exactly what Abel Lerner would want it to do, and he wants to borrow money um, as necessary. So we have modern monetary. People say, oh, what if we get modern monetary? We have it. We have it. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the Green New Deal. Um, you know, this, this is a wonderful utopian idea where everybody's going to get a guaranteed annual income. 
they're going to get free college, universal health care. Um, uh, is that going to work? I mean, that's the, there, there are a lot of people who have signed on to that. Um, you know, the Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, Ed Markey, uh, Markey uh, bill. You know, almost every Democratic candidate, except for Joe Biden, uh, even Mayor Pete, has signed on to it. So uh, is that a good idea? No. And why not? Well, common sense tells you it's not a good idea, right? Well, I mean, these are, there are 20, over 20 people. Correct. The common sense tells you it's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, you know, some of them must have know. some comments. I, no, it's, I mean, it's been tried. It's been tried, and if it did work, we would not just be discovering it in the year 2019. Well, you know, but I mean, a lot of people are going forward with this. And, yes, they are. You know, there are, and nobody is willing to say how it's going to be paid for. The solutions for, well, I, yeah, you no, know, wealth tax yeah. or raising tax on 16,000 people who make uh, millions of dollars a year are not going to raise anywhere near enough money to pay for this. Byron, you got into Wall Street about 1954? No, no, I I, I kicked around for a while trying to find my... After you got out of the army, you you came to Wall Street. And when you did in the Eisenhower, late Eisenhower years, the the highest marginal tax rate was, I think, officially at 90%, no? Yeah. Yeah. Did anybody pay it? And it was 70% for a while while I was working. Did you pay it? (laughs) Did I pay it? No, I wasn't making enough money to pay it. <laughs> thank goodness for that. <laughs> yeah. No, thank God, by the time I was making any serious money, the tax rate had come down. But Good work, by you know, but, but the <laughs> look, but this is, you know, but this is a, a, a credible idea that you're going to hear a lot more from. No, no, it's not uh, credible. We are going to, I'll, I'll meet you halfway. It's not credible, but yes, we will hear a lot about it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but it, it, it's a serious problem. So, you know, what you're saying is there's that, not that much difference between Obama and Trump. and uh, Not that much difference in some statistical, important statistical measures of the economy under Trump so far versus the last four years of Obama. Okay, so now we're at the question period. <laughs> nice transition, but... Uh. <laughs> What stocks you like, Byron? I'm not allowed to talk about that. Um, and it's raining. But, yeah. Okay, so how is this uh, trade war going to be resolved? Guns. <laughs> Guns? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess it'll be resolved with a tweet. I'm not sure if the tweet will be helpful. Or not. I, I don't mean to be glib. I am being glib, but I don't, simply don't know. No, but I mean, you know, is it going to be resolved? I mean, I would argue that both sides want it. China needs it because, uh, you know, the the tariffs are on five percent uh, of Chinese goods, and China needs it economically, and we need it. Trump needs it politically, and so therefore, a deal is likely to be done. Is that right? I think a deal will be done in six months. Do you agree with that? I mean, I. I... The trouble with, with human beings is that um, 
Uh, they do things that are in nobody's interest, including their own, all the time. Nobody was interested in starting World War I or, World, well, World War II is a little bit different, but uh, a lot of things happen through miscalculation, happenstance, and sheer bad luck. And uh, I'm not so sure this is going to resolve peaceably in six months. I'm not so, so sure the tariffs are the big problem. It seems to me that the problem's running. Um, anyway, blah, blah, blah. You're, you're not sure they're a problem? Why? Because we can get the goods from somebody else? Um, I mean, tw- 37% of yeah. the goods that we're raising tariffs Correct. on yeah. are technology products. They're component parts that we reassemble in a finished product. Well, tariffs someone likened years ago as, uh, <laughs> as if you went out and instead of connecting countries with roads, this is in Europe, you dug ditches instead, big wide ditches so that wagons couldn't cross over. That's the effect of a tariff. And that uh, metaphor still holds, and I agree with you, Byron. It's not helpful. It's amazing how similar these questions are. Amazing how similar the answers are. Is there there a question to which we can answer, Byron? (laughs) There's got to be... Can you make one up? Well, you know, these questions are, 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 you know, because the stock market is collapsing here, a lot of these questions are about the trade issue. So that's clearly on people's mind. Well, let me, let's, let's, go, let's go back to this word collapsing. This, okay. this speaks to, to me speaks of the fragility of our affairs. Something in our bones that tells us that uh, something is not quite right. I mean, the stock market is down, what, 5% from the time? 3%, 3.5%? Why don't you use the word collapse? Mm-hmm. Well, look, look. You know, let's look at it from the point of view of the average person. You know, Trump is not going to be reelected by millionaires or billionaires. He's going to be reelected by the average person. Wages have been essentially flat in real terms for a decade. You know, people, and so a lot of people are going to respond to whatever promises Trump makes. And Trump is going to say, you know, clearly, that these people are better off than they were four years ago. And, you know, that that is probably true unless you live in New York or New Jersey, Massachusetts, and California. Um, So these people are going to respond to that, and there's a pretty good chance Trump is going to win re-election. What's the argument against that? Well, if the criterion is economic uh, success or lack of it, it seems to me the big risk is that what seems to be breaking out today in the world, which is a case of distinct financial insecurity based upon perceived geopolitical troubles having to do with tariffs and with trade, that is a big potential problem for Trump. Everyone says that there can be no recession there can always be a there can always be one. I mean, the, uh, the, the, you know, t- today, I guess, the, uh, the th- it's a kind of a recondite fact. The three-year, th- sorry, the three-month Treasury bill yield uh, came to exceed the rate of interest paid on the 10-year Treasury. That's called, in the trade, that's called an inverted yield curve. A yield curve is, is the description of the level of interest rates over time. That's a yield curve. And when the yield curve... Uh, begins with a higher number than it ends with when three months is higher than the longer term rate. That is 
at least a time-tested signal of potential trouble. And the reason for that is that um, banks borrow at very short-term interest rates and they lend at longer ones. And when they pay more to borrow than they do get to lend, that means that their profits contract. It means that lending tends to contract. It means that activity tends to contract. Well, this is going to be a good place to end because historically the yield curve inverts because the short end rises above the long end. But this time the yield curve inverted because the long end declined below the short. Can you name another time in history where that's happened? I yeah, can. I can. Yeah, I can. I could. But it, I, I, you could, but you'd have to invent it. Um, <laughs> um, the Fed is only in business 100 years. We have uh, uh, oh, no, 1,900 no. years of history we're seeing. I bet it happened. Don't give me the Joe and Lie uh, argument, you know. Yeah. You know, uh, on the French Revolution, it's uh, too soon to tell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, I mean, you know, what I'm saying is what's going on. There are a lot of one-off things going on right now, and it's hard to know the outcome. This trade war that we're in is not going to have a big effect on our economy, but it's going to have a big effect on theirs. So we're playing a game of chicken here, and it's going to be hard to determine who's going to turn off the road first. But these are problems that are very real Um, but they have different dimensions for the two sides. We can survive this trade war. I don't know that China can't. And we can't stop. You know, even if Trump puts these tariffs on, um, we're going to keep on buying Chinese goods. But this is not good. The insularity, economic insularity and political insularity that's being demonstrated by the Trump administration is going to have long-term economic and political implications. But what, what do you say to the, uh, to the uh, you know, blatantly predatory practices of uh, China with respect, for example, to intellectual property? Well, you know, I don't know. Thank goodness. Oh, my God, we got more questions. These will be more hostile than the last movie. <laughs> um, they have more reason to be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, look, you know, I think Donald Trump is right to be tough on China. And, you know, that China has confiscated our intellectual property. They forced us to make compromises in negotiations that we've made in forming partnerships with Chinese companies. So I think Trump is right to have a hard hard stance. The only question is, does China need our business enough to make the concessions Trump wants? And it's not clear that they're going to see it that way. So that's the problem. How about deregulation? Has that been a good thing? You know, that's certainly one of the things that Trump thinks is a triumph. He thinks that one of the reasons unemployment is so low is because of deregulation. Is he right? Well, I think there's, um, uh, there uh, was, under Obama, a great expansion of what some people call, I would call the administrative state, a great expansion of uh, uh, federal power delegated to uh, you know, administrative law judges and to agencies and a lot of rulemaking that had nothing to do with laws, nothing directly to do with laws enacted by the people 
that we, the people, send to Congress. So I think that uh, deregulation as practiced by the administration so far has been on net very wholesome indeed, both from a financial and economic and a political point of view. Okay. So Trump says that the U.S. is taking in billions of dollars as a result of these tariffs. Is he right? That we're take oh, oh, I see. That, uh, well, there was a time in this country when uh, tariff receipts constituted the entirety of the federal revenue, and that ended, oh, about 1913. So the, 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 the tariff income that this country earns is less than a drop in a bucket, even on a rainy day like this. Mm. You know, one thing we haven't talked about is there anything? We <laughs> no, we got oh, we got more time. One thing we haven't talked about is inequality, Jim. Um, you know, and it, it seems to me I'm looking at some figures from 1985 compared to now, and um, you know, 10 percent of this, the top 10 percent, you uh, have a a disproportionate uh, share of national wealth. And it's uh, incre- increased in the last 35 years. Can anything be done about the inequality problem? Yeah. You the, look stumped. Uh, no, the, I was just thinking, the Federal Reserve is on its high horse about this. And to me, it speaks to the almost uh, incredible lack of self-awareness on the part of these people. Um, I would ascribe a great deal of the uh, rise in that portion of wealth going to the very upper ends of the population. I would ascribe a great deal of that to financial activity that's been predicated upon the monetary regime of the past 10 years. The amount of money that has gone into the hands of the venture capitalists and the private equity people and uh, even some in Blackstone, ask some in Blackstone, has not a little to do with... No, no, with I, I know I'm up on the stage as a representative of evil. <laughs> and you're the representative of good. Journalistic wholesomeness, I think. is. Um, but I, I, I think that uh, one source of... I'm not, we can, I think the, the question of whether it's a problem is another question. But I think one source of the fact of the great disparity in income and wealth certainly among financial people, has to do with the cost of capital. And that cost, and to the extent that cost of capital has been artificially imposed, to that extent, the government itself is the source of much of the inequality. Do you, is there a number on the federal deficit, uh, such as 3% of GDP, that you would consider, consider sustainable? We're headed toward 5% now. I mean, I, um, what's sustainable is whether the the foreign creditors are going to buy our paper. And uh, I mean, what's in it for this? So say you are sitting in a foreign capital and you get the, va- the following value proposition. You can buy uh, a promise by the United States government, a solemn promise by the Treasury uh, to repay you in dollars in 30 years. And over the course of those 30 years, you will earn 2.8% a year in interest. All right, so uh, that's the basic uh, value proposition. Now, you are also uh, given to understand the Federal Reserve intends and is uh, fully 
uh, capable of depreciating the value of those dollars by 2% a year. That leaves you a real return of 0.8% a year over the course of 30 years. And it's on these set of, this set of figures that we market our debt abroad. And I can't explain, well, one reason why it seems uh, desirable is because everything else is less so. Uh, I mentioned this $10 trillion worth of securities, mostly in yen and Swiss francs and uh, European currencies, that is priced to yield not 2.8, not 1.8, but 0.4, so less than nothing. So the worldwide cabal of central bankers has pressed down rates everywhere, and the resulting scramble for yield has, uh, has facilitated an immense outpouring of borrowing, especially from sovereign, not especially, well, especially from sovereign governments. So should the Federal Reserve be raising rates? I think the Federal Reserve should have raised rates when it could have raised rates and now is in a position of raising rates. It would be in uh, the, the gun sites of somebody who would say that it brought down the stock market. And to a degree, it might have done that if it were persisting in raising rates. So you... So the Fed is right to stay on hold this year? Uh, Fed is, uh, uh, is in a pickle of its own making. Right. Well, how do you get out of a pickle? Drain the brine. From the- <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I, I think what's going to happen, we'll have a normal cycle. The stock market will be down. Is this a prediction? No, it's not a prediction. I'm a journalist. The stock market will be down a lot, and people will say... <laughs> It's going to be a recession, and there might be a recession. So Let me, I'm not finished with my prophecy yet. And, um, and in the wake of this, there will be some trouble in finance and some bankruptcies, and yes, and uh, some distress. But many debts will be written down as they ought to be because they're unpayable. And we will emerge from it uh, chastened and, to, and soon stronger. And interest rates will normalize, uh, in part thanks to the... Uh, clearing away of some of the debt that is weighing on prices and on incomes. So, Jim, to, to distill your views, you think that what's going on now, the combination of Fed policy, uh, profligate borrowing by corporations, running of a large budget deficit and the trade war, is going to bring a recession sooner than most people think? Well, I'm not, I, I will certainly say it's just a, a, a truism verging on... Um, an insult to the audience, but there certainly will be a recession. There always will be a recession. But I think that the proximate cause for recession is much clearer than most people acknowledge. You know, the people cite the the presidential election cycle. You know, you don't have you don't have recession this time with president. Well, I I, th- I think what is among many other things you mentioned many differences in this cycle. One of them. Um, perhaps are the consequences now emerging of uh, 10 years of radical monetary experimentation. Uh, And you can't really uh, project outcomes based upon unprecedented events. And these 10 years in monetary affairs have been unprecedented. So you would say that just as the Federal Reserve, I think the Federal Reserve was largely responsible for the 2008-9 recession. And you're saying that the Federal Reserve, again, will be respo- because of its monetary expansion, will be largely responsible 
for the recession that is yes, uh, but it, but in fair but in fairness to the Federal Reserve and in fairness to history, and in fairness to the nature of the human species, we have had recessions before anyone dreamt of instituting a Federal Reserve. Um, you know, people, uh, money is not humanity's best subject, and credit is a still weaker topic for most people. Uh, in England, let me, let me, tell, let me tell you this, the circumstances in which it's possible to have a recession okay. without a Federal Reserve. So in England, I, I want you to imagine the evident um, perfection of this state of affairs for an economy. There's a, there's a currency that is grounded in a tangible thing. It's, it can't be overissued because the rate of gold production basically runs in parallel with the rate of population growth. So that anchors the currency. And, and then the banks are structured in such a way that the stockholder is responsible personally, personally for the debts that their institution incurs, as they should say, down the last shilling and last acre. So the banks, you would think, would not overdo it because their owners are personally liable for the excess. But in 1826, 1837, 1846, 1847, uh, the fellow about whom I've written this book, Walter Badgett, is the author of a book called Lombard Street. And it was a, it's the still cited um, kind of handbook of central banking's way of looking at it. And Badgett uh, was the, uh, the author of an epigram, he said, uh, alluding to the national symbol of Britain. He said, John Bull can stand anything, but he can't stand 2%. And he said that alluding to the evident connection between very, very low rates of interest and uh, a lot of ill-advised risk-taking and speculation, which went too far, which brought down uh, some of the leading financial houses in the city of London and which led to the withdrawal of credit and a panic and a period of quiescence that we now call a recession. And it happened without any of the institutional problems that we see today around us. So, you know, we can blame the Fed for this and that, and I've certainly done my share of that. But I think, again, uh, because we are now in the auditorium of Bernard Schwartz and we're in the institution of New York Historical Society, we ought to um, be, I think, aware of the inherent weakness of human beings around money. It's the same way we act around Damour. We're not very rational sometimes. <laughs> well... Jim, you may not be the Grim Reaper, but the Grim Reaper has appeared here. Um, you know, and there are just a couple of things that, that we should conclude with. Jim has given us a number of things to worry about, and they are in the realm of excess. <laughs> My job, Byron. Uh, they are in the realm of excess. But prior to, to our getting into this trade war, um, there were relatively few excesses uh, in the U.S. economy, which is why I thought we had a couple of years until the next recession. The trade war could precipitate some of the excesses that Jim is talking about. So it's right for all of you to pick up the paper every day and figure out whether the economy is responding to it. And if this decline in the market continues, uh, it'll be a result not only of Fed policy, but also of government policy 
and the trade practices that we have pursued. So there's plenty to worry about, but sometimes when that happens, an opportunity is developing. And that was the case with the Brexit scare, and it may be the case with the China scare. Thank you all for coming in the rain. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.